It's really good to be uh, with all of you today and to share in this time of worship. Um, for those I don't know, I'm, I'm Dan, I'm one of the pastors, and we're in week two of a series we've just called Book of Kings. And uh, if you were with us last week, you kind of have a sense of where we left off, but I will tell you if you're new this week, uh, we're at a moment of suspense. Uh, we left it with a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of last week's session. It was the ninth century before Jesus Christ was born. Uh, and the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was enduring this era of superficial flourishing. The uh, Jewish king Ahab had, had married the daughter of the, uh, the Phoenician king, the great kingdom, maritime kingdom to the north, and her name was Jezebel. And this had created some really significant changes in the life of Israel. The marriage brought greater political and economic might to Israel. Uh, it actually lessened the chances that Israel and, and Phoenicia to the north would ever go to war and, and dissipate resources in both countries. In fact, that is why they often did these international marriages in old times, was to try and, and build the prosperity of, of two nations and lessen the chance that they would have conflict. And so I think you can uh, uh, gather that if in the moment that they were going through at that time, there was a, a lot of excitement about what was happening in the country. I'm sure that had there been these institutions in those days, the palace press conferences would have been trumpeting all of the progress and advances that were now going on in the life of the nation. But something else was also going on. Something else was also happening that was going to have major reverberations in the life of the country. Uh, I want to get at what that was by just describing an experience I had as a kid. I, when I was a child, I used to walk to school every day, at least to elementary school. And our house was at the end of this dirt road. It was about a mile walk all the way to the school, and my siblings and I would make that walk. And one of the, the sights along that journey that was particularly uh, memorable to me was the sight of this really incredible willow tree that was alongside the road. It was sat near the edge of the road. It was uh, planted right next to this beautiful stream of water that ran underneath the dirt road. And we would see it every single day. And at certain times of the day, the light would catch the canopy of these branches. And this tree would look almost incandescent. I mean, it looked almost supernatural. It was huge, and it, it looked like the kind of thing that had been there forever and would be there forever, and we loved that tree. Well, one day, we um, are coming down the road on our way to school, and we come around the bend, and we suddenly are confronted by a sight that is just, our jaws drop, we let out an audible gasp, because the night before there had been a storm and the winds had come up pretty uh, heavily and that tree had cracked in half and the entire magnificent canopy was now dumped down into the stream. And this tree's days were over. We walked closer to examine this disaster and my siblings and I suddenly could see something we had never before been able to discern. And what we saw was that despite the magnificent appearance of this tree through those years, inside something else had been happening. The, the tree, the trunk of the tree, was almost completely hollow. I, I don't know whether it was termites or tree rot or what, but it was almost completely hollow so that when the winds came up, 
that tree just could not possibly stand the pressure. There's a famous line from the lips of the prophet Samuel that goes like this. People look at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. People see the external look of things, but God, he's always paying attention to the internal reality of things. And I think this is true of individuals, of families, of businesses, of churches, and even entire societies. They can look on the outside really pretty good until they come under a fierce kind of pressure and they can suddenly fail. They can suddenly uh, fall. And this to me is another one of the lessons of the book of Kings, and we've been mining some of those lessons already. And the lesson is that health at the center matters most. Health at the very core matters most. For all of the strengths that uh, Ahab and Jezebel brought as charismatic, savvy, clever, uh, persevering leaders in their society, they themselves had something that was going wrong at the center, and it would ultimately give forth a kind of leadership that would be very bad for the core health of Israel. Israel, as you may know, had been founded with an unusual characteristic. Uh, very unusual for, these, um, for cultures in the ancient world. Israel had one God. Uh, most cultures celebrated uh, you know, bazillions of gods. Um, at, we call that paganism, but they have gods for everything. People's interests are very diversified and they're very parochial. The gods are always usually about serving their particular special needs in this zone of life or that zone of life. Israel was different. It believed in one great God above all. It, it called people to a, to a faith in Yahweh or Jehovah or the Lord as he was called uh, as their one singular devotion. Under kings like David and Solomon, uh, the nation's faith in this one God had grown and prospered, and the tree of Israel had grown large and strong and spread its branches out and had immense kinds of influence, never perfectly, because David and Solomon and the nation wasn't perfect, but it was a time of tremendous vitality in the life of Israel. As the next series of, of kings succeeded, um, David and Solomon, uh, those rulers were not so, you know, heavily focused on that one true God. They, they progressively lost their uh, spiritual center, in a sense, and a kind of rot began to, to grow in Israel's life. And then Ahab and Jezebel come along, and they take that to a whole new kind of level. And if you were not with us last week, you can get a refresher on that by going back to the Christchurch Connect app or hit our website and listen to the first message in the series. It provides some really helpful uh, context. Suffice it to say that the one God focus that had been Israel's specialty, what we call monotheism, now gives way to multi-focus spirituality, what is sometimes called polytheism or syncretism, meaning kind of a combination, a fusion, a hybridization of, of spiritualities. And, and this new spirituality involves worshiping the, the Phoenician, uh, Jezebel's originating country, the Phoenician gods of Baal and Ashtaroth and Asherah and eventually many, many other entities. And again, we touched on some of this last week. The great British... Uh, evangelical um, and, and author G.K. Chesterton is credited with observing 
that when people stop worshiping uh, one God, um, they don't worship nothing. They worship anything. They worship anything. And if you think about it, it really makes common sense what Chesterton says here. If you take out of your center, you take away your central focus, uh, the great God of love and beauty and wisdom that we meet in Scripture and particularly the life of Jesus, um, it leaves behind a very large hollow space inside. You lose that, that presence at the center of your life. It leaves a big hollow space. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who was a famous French mathematician, brilliant guy, and a philosopher, uh, called that space the God-sized vacuum. He says there's a God-sized vacuum at the heart of many people which no created thing can possibly fill up. And, and even if we consider ourselves not particularly spiritual or not even religious at all, and many people today think of themselves in that way, they are also subject to this, to this reality. They are also subject to, to a certain hollowness that, that, that lives within them, a certain emptiness, uh, a space where God belongs. Uh, remembering that Aristotle once said that nature abhors a vacuum, what's the logical thing we're going to do if, there, if such a space exists in us? What's the logical thing we're going to do? We're going to find things to fill it up. We're going to stuff stuff into that space within us. Uh, we're going to keep worshiping, because all that worship really is is, 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 to have a, is is having a focus in life, something we talk about and think about a whole lot, uh, something we are willing to sacrifice for, something that we devote ourselves to because we think it's gonna bring us a success or identity or significance of some kind. We are made as spiritual beings. The image of God is in us, the Bible says. So we are gonna do something to devote ourselves. We're gonna chase something and devote ourselves to it. We're gonna worship in some way. Worship is not, remember this, worship's not a, about a building. There are altars everywhere. Worship's a mindset. Worship's a way of moving through life. Worship is a way of pursuit of that which we believe is, is, is utmost. So we may worship at the altar of perfect hair or we may worship at the altar of, of perfect skin or abs or breasts or behinds. And there's a lot of evidence that those altars are out there, right? I mean, every time I get a magazine, I'm going, wow, there it is again, an invitation to work, a call to worship. You know, um, it's there. Uh, we may relentlessly pursue material things and never feel that we can get enough. A very wealthy man was once asked, how much is enough? And he says, a little bit more. Just a little bit more. We may uh, adulate celebrity. We may anticipate our next escape experience as if we were going to heaven. Think about next time as you're watching the advertising of our time, just notice how often they're trying to picture, you know, some resort or vacation spot as heaven on earth. You know, we are still reaching for heaven, whether we're willing to name it uh, for what it is or not. We may bow at the altar of sex or control or intoxication or power or popularity or sports. And again, we're always being invited to worship in those ways. I know that you and I never actually do that. We, are, we don't, aren't interested in that, but do pray for the person sitting next to you because they're struggling. <laughs> pray for me. Here's a huge takeaway 
The pagan idolatries that Ahab and Jezebel were leading Israel to pursue, um, these, these idolatries were about all the same things human beings still chase today. You know, we go back and we read this ancient history. It's just, it's just showing us ourselves at a different time in history. Um, human nature being the consistent stuff that it is. Um, Idolatry, here's a little definition. Idolatry is what human beings turn to when they no longer have the great God of love uh, on the throne of their soul or on the throne of their society. And, and the challenge is that the bales, these various godlets that we chase after, they do not have the power to give us what we're looking for. They do not have a, the power to, to fill us up, which is why it's always about a little bit more. A little bit more. In fact, they're, they're really much more like termites or like tree rot that just widen the hollow space inside of us when we make them our priority. And so when the inevitable storms come, and Jesus says, you know, there's like no way of like putting your life where you're not going to face serious storms at some point. When those storms come to our body, to our family, to our community, to our country, it can be very, very hard on the willow tree. You see what I'm saying? So God doesn't say, thou shalt have no other gods before me because he's insecure. <laughs> God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't say, thou shalt have no other gods before me because he's stingy, because he, he wants to squash our fun, you know? No, God says this because he loves us, because he wants us filled up and healthy and whole and able to find life abundant and, and find life eternal. Uh, I love actually the way the very first psalm, and psalm, there's 150 psalms, I love the way the very first one puts it, I quote it. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And what that's really saying, and it may sound a little weird, but he's basically saying blessed is the person that doesn't do the normal thing, that doesn't chase after these things that everybody's chasing after. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We hear that word law and we think, ooh, heavy, crushing. No, no, think of law as the way to life, as the pathways that are proven, that, that can help us. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on that uh, law day and night. That, and this is the part I want you to really listen to. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. In other words, that's not gonna come crashing down when the storm hits because it's not hollow at the center. It's filled with God's presence and God's power and it's resilient in the storm. How many of you remember the story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Remember the hearing that story when you were a kid? You know, for those of you who missed it or may have lived in another part of the world, um, it's, it's, it's by Hans Christian Andersen, the Danish folk teller, and, and it's about this, um, this very wealthy, powerful um, emperor 
who, who is visited by a couple of traveling tailors who promise that he, they can weave for him the most magnificent garment that he's ever had. It will be a, an outfit that just makes jaws drop. Um, and it's going to be very, very expensive. And it's going to have one really interesting quality about it. It will only be visible to those who are intelligent. So there are a couple of sessions as, as the emperor wants to see the garment in its manufacturing state. And he visits and his court comes in and visits. And uh, even though their eyes are actually telling them there's nothing there, they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to look unintelligent. So they say, oh, that's magnificent. That's fabulous. Keep going. Well, the day comes when the king finally is presented with this garment at great cost, and he goes out, parades through his kingdom, and by now, the, the, the story, the rumor, the, the idea that only the very intelligent will be able to see this beautiful garment, it has swept everybody, and everybody pretends. They're giving oohs and ahs about how spectacular the outfit is. Until at long last, one little child speaks out and says, the emperor's naked. And everybody goes, and they know it's true. It takes a huge amount of courage, or maybe innocence, to to challenge a universally accepted lie. And, And... and really, in the, in the biblical sense, the role of the prophet or prophets was to challenge lies. And I would suggest to you one of the roles God has still given to, all, to the, uh, the prophetic people of God, to the church, is to be ones who dare to challenge very commonly accepted uh, ways of coming at things that really aren't true or, or aren't working in the way that... that that leads to human flourishing. Back in the ninth century BC, at the height of the spiritual swindling operation that was being propagated by the prophets of Baal, and we'll talk more about them in a couple weeks, uh, and, and which had been bought at great price by Ahab and Jezebel, who were the emperors of that day, um, in the midst of this whole scenario, one lone voice cries out from the crowd, And the voice says, in effect, these idols that you're being sold have no power to clothe you. They have no power to really feed you or help you or to keep your tree standing strong in the midst of the storms of life. In fact, Ahab and Jezebel, you're going to be judged for going along with this scam, for for leading the ordinary people of your kingdom into this scam. Now, the book of Kings literally reads as follows. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, not Tickbite, Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. The jig is up. The tree of your administration in this whole System of idolatry is hollow. God's going to see that you get no more water for this operation. Not do, not rain, nada, until he sees you changing your heart. Until he sees you turning your wicked ways and, and says to me, Elijah, let there be water again. 
That's what the message of Elijah is. Like the Mandalorian in Disney's um, series of that name, or like any character Clint Eastwood played. (laughs) You know, Elijah just shows up out of nowhere at a moment of crisis. And he he appears as a voice of truth and sanity and justice saying, restructure, you know, refocus, Uh, do this so you can escape the consequences of what you're doing wrong. So we're going to hear a lot more about this guy. We're going to talk about him through the rest of this series. He's a fascinating character and has a lot to say to us about our lives. But um, I want to tell you the little bit we do know uh, about him. Um, The book of Chronicles, which parallels the book of Kings, tells us that Elijah was one of three sons who was born to uh, somebody by the name of Jeroham. Uh, He grew up in Gilead, which is a region northeast of uh, modern-day Israel in what would today be the country of Jordan. And as in the case of Jesus, the Bible doesn't give give us a ton of detail about the beginning of his life. It mainly focuses on what he does when his time had come, when the moment of calling uh, to public influence had come. And I want you to think with me about just how special this figure is. Uh, What what is it that actually makes him so special? Well, Elijah's going to go on to play a very dramatic role, not just in the history of Israel, but he will become a model of courage, obedience, and perseverance for followers of God the world over in centuries ahead. Elijah is not just one name in a long list of people in the credits. He is one of the major figures of Scripture. He's like one of the people that gets top marquee billing in the Bible when you evaluate his name against other names. Uh, Alongside of Moses, Elijah gets top billing as as a prophet. Moses and Elijah, the two uh, leading actors in the prophecy department in the Bible. The New Testament actually mentions Elijah more than any other prophet. In the New Testament times, uh, he is more important than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and Amos and Micah and Malachi and Habakkuk and all the list of the other important figures. Elijah's number one as far as the New Testament is concerned. Um, and, And from his time forward... We're going to meet more prophets. Up to the time of Elijah, prophets are really pretty rare. People who speak out from the crowd the truth, pretty rare in Israel. From his time on, they start coming like a flood into the life of Israel. In fact, there will be a school of prophets modeled on the person of Elijah. Elijah, nonetheless, will remain in a class by himself. He is the, uh, maybe the, oh, there may be one of two people that are described as so special to God, they're taken up to heaven even before they die. He's, he's one of those. Elijah is one of the figures who uh, appears uh, at the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes his disciples up on a mountain one day, and he says, I'm going to give you, James and John and Peter, I'm going to give you a glimpse of who I really am. And Jesus appears in all of his heavenly glory, You know, they have to shield their eyes from the brilliance of his glory. And there, in the midst of the glory, are Elijah and Moses with Jesus. Talk about being in an exclusive small group, right? 
This is, this is Elijah. Um, both John the baptizer and Jesus himself are mistaken by some people as Elijah reincarnated. This is how predominant Elijah was in the imagination of the Jewish people uh, all those years ago. And I personally like him, not just because he's this amazingly impressive figure and does amazing things, I like him because he's also so human. He's like Peter or others that we meet in the New Testament. You know, he makes mistakes, he's got doubts, he's got struggles, and we'll talk about that in days to come. He's troubled by the things that trouble you and me. And we have a lot to learn from him in that regard. But as we move to a close today, let me just call out, if I can, very briefly, three particular convictions that Elijah holds that shape his life, that drive his life, and which I want to suggest to you and me could just be things that maybe we need to take into the center of ourselves more fully too, with with good results. So to do this, let me go back to the very first verse of, of 1 Kings chapter 17 and just break it down for us. Elijah begins his address to Ahab the king by saying this, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Elijah's life is shaped by a conviction that there is a God who lives. There is, you know, there's a lot of superstition. There's a lot of make-believe gods. But there is a There is a God who lives. He's not a myth. He's not a projection. He's not a wish and fantasy. He's not a character in a book that we just open up and read about and then shut it and push it away. Uh, Elijah is convinced there is an alpha and an omega, a beginning and an end to life, that there's a God in whom we live and move and have our very being. There's a God who is holding together the subatomic particles that make up your body and everything you see and touch by his grace and his power. He's doing this right now. Elijah believes. I don't think he knew about subatomic particles, but he believes in a God that pervasive. He believes in a God who is the final assessor uh, of of our life and of the value and worth of the way we've lived it. God, the God that Elijah believes in, is not a resource. He is the source. He's not just somebody we plug into and plug out of amongst all the different uh, possible resources of life. He's the one who's meant to be, who is our actual source, and is meant to be the one uh, through whom we live uh, our lives. He is the one redeemer. He is the one great hope of the world. And every moment, therefore, is meant to be conditioned by the fact that he lives. So here's the question. Is that the way you and I are looking at life? Do we share that conviction? How, how is our life demonstrably different? Because we believe he lives. This God lives. This belief of Elijah's is foundational then to how he thinks about himself. And and he says, as the verse goes on, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, whom I serve. Now that's really striking to me. Because as I said, Elijah is a great figure. But he does not think of himself that way. He does not think of himself as special. Elijah thinks of himself as God's servant. God's servant, first and foremost. 
Now, I think it's curious that when we go to the New Testament and we meet sort of probably the two greatest uh, figures other than Jesus in the New Testament, um, they also see themselves that way. We meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and the angel comes to her and gives her this incredible news. And it's like announcing a serious calamity in a lot of ways. And she says, may it be unto me, as, as you've said. May it be unto me, according to thy word, for I am the Lord's servant. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. That's how Mary sees herself. That's my, that's my job description. That's my identity. I am a servant of the Lord. Similarly, we go forward a little bit. The Apostle Paul. Remember who this guy was. He was the, one of the leading attorneys of the day. He'd gone to the best law school of the day. He was a Roman citizen, an incredible privilege. He was brilliant. He had suffered all kinds of, of outrageous trials. He'd been one of the top Pharisees, one of the most significant religious or political figures in, in Jewish uh, society. But when he introduces himself, how does he do it? He says, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And he does that in almost every one of his letters. He introduces himself first as a servant of Christ Jesus. Is that your primary self-definition? I had to ask myself that. Dan, is that yours? And I go, well, it's definitely on the list. You know, I definitely have that somewhere on the list. But couldn't that be, shouldn't that be the highest definition? If God lives, that all of us are above all that, his servant. When we get up in the morning and we enter our day, when we go off to school or to our workplace, when we enter into difficult situations, when we are making decisions about how we handle our resources, when we're trying to figure out whether we should talk to that person or what we should actually talk about and how we should talk about it, do we come at it thinking, I am the Lord's servant there. There's a God who lives, and I get to serve him there. I'm convinced there's going to be no greater identity that we can claim at the end of our life than being able to say with confidence and joy, I have served the king. I've served the king. In fact, Jesus said in his parables that the best thing you could possibly hear at the end of your life is the words, well done, Good and faithful what? Yeah. It's the greatest position. It's the most beautiful position we could have in life. So listen to this final clause that tells us how Elijah thought about life. As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain except at my word. What Elijah was saying is there's going to be a drought now. There's going to be a serious drought now. It's a message really similar to the message that Moses, the other marquee prophet, um, gives to Pharaoh. There are going to be plagues now because God is, apparently has to shake your tree to bring about change. Um, 
in every age, people have this tendency. And I would suggest that the more affluent we are, the more powerful, the more educated we are, the more we have this personal challenge, that we start to have this tendency to think that the common graces that have gotten us to where we are in life, we manufactured, or we control, or they will always be there. They'll just be there. Ahab and Jezebel, I bet dollars to donuts, assumed that, that the needed blessings like the morning dew and the afternoon rains would always be there. That would keep the, the, the common life of the world going on. But God is in charge of all grace. God is in charge of all the graces of life. And the good news is he likes giving it. I mean, if there's one thing we learn about God through Jesus especially, but throughout the Bible, is that he likes to bless people. He, something brings God joy to just bless people. It's why there's even a world or a universe in the first place. He didn't have to, to externalize himself. He chose to give life to others. Jesus would say in the New Testament, your father in heaven causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Both get benef the benefit of sunshine. And he sends rain, which is a good thing in a hot climate. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God likes to bless people. But we're foolish if we think he has to. Or he has to keep doing it. If somebody takes his grace for granted for too long, he may just suspend it. Elijah understood that there's life-draining consequences to, to continually ignoring God and chasing after all these other things and putting these, these godlets on the throne instead of him. So even if God does not actively punish us by, by suspending gravity, water, <laughs> air, um, that keeps us surviving. When we do not put God first, we do lose the grace that we need for true thriving. And that's his desire for us, that we thrive. Sometimes only great calamities will awaken us to the fact that we've, we've grown too accustomed to grace. We've been diversifying our loyalties too much. We've not been treating him like he lives or that we're his servants. Sometimes only great calamities shake the tree to the point where change happens. So let me close with these words from the great um, journalist and British evangelical leader Malcolm Muggridge. And as I read these words, think about life today. Think about what you see on the news. Think about what you're watching unfolding in our world today. And, and hear this. This is what Muggridge says. Let's then rejoice that we see around us at every hand the decay of the institutions and the instruments of power. Let's then rejoice when we see intimations of empires fading. Let's then rejoice when we see money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion and the conflicts which encompass them. Let's then rejoice, actually, 
when this kind of disturbance and shaking happens, for it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every recourse this world offers has been explored to no effect, it is precisely then in the gathering darkness when every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, it is then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm to be taken hold of. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightness, abolishing the darkness. So finding in everything only deception and nothingness, the soul is finally constrained to turn to God himself. And it is the hope that we will do this and the hope of the example of others who have done this to which we will return next week as the story of the book of Kings continues. Please pray with me. Living God, we confess how easily and often we turn to idols how much we hope to find in them satisfaction, the supply of grace we can only find in you. We acknowledge, Lord, that we aren't seeing the thriving that all of us want. At times it feels like we're in danger of not even surviving. We need a new kind of health at the center of our souls. We need a new kind of health at the center of our society to learn again what it means to live life in the light of the fact that you live and as your servants. So God, we repent. We we humbly ask you, please take your rightful place on the throne of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.